This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are also going to be talking about education. Megan Colley is going to join us. She's done a fantastic job on an education series on global news. And I want to touch on some of the things that she has been able to discover. So all of those things are coming up in just a couple of minutes. We will talk with Jacqueline Carbone of 980 CFPL because she went to see Game Changers. And this is something that has been discussed a lot. It basically chronicles some elite athletes, some elite performers who live in a world in which they have a plant-based diet. And it kind of looks at whether or not the idea that if you are going to be an elite performer, you have to eat meat. And there have been two very distinct sides heading toward this documentary. I mean, it's one of those things that you mentioned. People haven't even seen it, and they have an opinion on it, saying, are you kidding me? Don't be a plant-based diet and go and try and play in the National Football League. Don't don't have a plant-based diet and try and be a bodybuilder. Now, Jacqueline does live and does eat a plant-based diet. She she lives a vegan lifestyle, so she's got her own perspective on it. But she's going to be able to give us a little bit of a review as to what happens in this movie so that we get a, a little bit more than just, uh, yeah, Game Changers chronicles athletes who eat plant-based diets and some of them leave, live vegan lifestyles. Uh, so we're going to look at that. Right now, we get an opportunity to talk with somebody who is going through school and is making a big difference in it. Madeline Quelo is someone who has graduated and at the 2019 Global Undergraduate Awards, she was one of four winners in Canada for a pretty exclusive international award. Global winner in the social sciences, sociology, and social policy. Now, here's what Madeline has done. She received that award for her paper, Rape Myths in Digital Spaces, an analysis of high-profile sexual assault cases on Twitter which sounds like a fascinating read. Now, we're not going to have Madeline on to read her paper, but we do get to talk to her about some of the things that she researched and some of the things that she found. But I want you to just take a second. I'm going to read it a little bit more slowly because I want you to form a little bit of an opinion on this, okay? Rape myths in digital spaces, an analysis of high-profile sexual assault cases on Twitter. So if we're dealing with information that is coming out on Twitter on high-profile sexual assault cases, what are some of the things that you might imagine are being tweeted? Just think about that in your mind right now. Would they be, would they be things that would cultivate a rape culture? Would they be things that would be anti-sexual assault? Which way would you kind of see this going? If you've used Twitter at all, you know that that can be a pretty vicious place. You know, that can be a spot where people just pile on. It can get pretty nasty in the old Twitterverse. So, Rape Myths in Digital Spaces, an analysis of high-profile sexual assault cases on Twitter. If you were to look into that, what do you expect that you would find? Which direction do you think it would go? Joining us right now on London Live is Madeline Quelo. Madeline, congratulations on the award. Thank you so much, Mike. Outstanding. So let's look at what made you even decide to research this. Well, rapists and specifically sexual assault affects 
so many people. In Canada, uh, 39% of adult women reported having at least one experience of sexual assault since the age of 16. It's a very pervasive issue that affects so many people, especially university students and young women. So it's something that I think needs to be focused on, and rape myths affect whether a perpetrator gets convicted, a uh, victim's perception of their assault, and especially how society treats the victim when they do come forward. So I think we really need to focus on how we're framing rape especially in sexual assault, especially now. <laughs> okay, so if we're looking at rape myths and, and we're looking at a couple of pretty high-profile cases that you looked at, maybe give us a, a little bit of background on the two that you focused in uh, are on in particular the the Steubenville High School rape case because I can't think of what that one's all about offhand and the Stanford rape case against Brock Turner. So let's start with the the Steubenville High School rape case. What happened there? So with the Steubenville High School rape case, it was August 2010, and in Steubenville, Ohio, they had an end of summer party. However, a party attendee had been sexually assaulted over several hours by two partygoers. Uh, however, these two partygoers were two star football players, and it led to a lot of controversy in the town. A lot of people were upset uh, that this victim was coming forward, that they were ruining the football season. Uh, and it actually wasn't until 2012 and 2013 that the case gained traction. Uh, the hacktivist group Anonymous got involved. Uh, it exposed some cover-ups happening in the school board. It led to the finding of a lot of proof. And additionally, a blogger began reporting on the details of the crime and in particular the community response and the community outrage and the controversy that was kind of stirring up here. And this was the one that actually had a video of a number of guys who were at this party that the victim was at and, and they made comments that made you think, wow, you know, that's that's almost admitting what took place. I do remember this one now. Yes. Yeah. And there was points where they're referring to the girl who was unconscious during this party as a dead body and referring to how she's unconscious. And it kind of goes back to this fundamental understanding of consent where some people don't understand that you cannot consent when you're unconscious. It's just not possible. Okay, so that was that one. We'll talk about how that played out on Twitter, on social media. The Stanford rape case against Brock Turner. What was that one about? So that was early 2015. Uh, Brock Turner was a Stanford student, and he sexually assaulted a young woman near the campus. Um, what gained a lot of like notoriety was the fact that he was a member of the school's varsity swim team, and a lot of people really like held on to this status, this idea that he wasn't a typical rape, rape perpetrator or that it was really unexpected. And during sentencing, although his sentence had a maximum sentence of 14 years in prison, he was actually only sentenced to six months and three with good behavior for three counts of felony sexual assault. The reason for this typically very low and lenient sentence was because he was seen as having a very bright future, and they didn't want to ruin his life. Wow. So when when you look at, at that particular case, let's start there, and, and let's look at, at what you found on Twitter that gave you some information to kind of you know make some conclusions about it. What exactly did you see happening there? So what I, I'll start with what I thought I was going to see. I thought I was going to see a lot of what we see on Twitter, which is people being not understanding towards victims and people reifying these rape myths and perpetuating rape culture. But when I looked at these keywords and I looked at all these tweets and I looked at over 10,000 tweets, what I ended up seeing a lot of, though, was people combating rape myths. 
So a very a popular rape myth, especially with the Brock Turner case, is that the woman is at fault for drinking too much. However, a lot of people are counting this narrative, calling, as I say, calling the university to be more accountable of rape culture and really putting the stress that this is the perpetrator's doing in that the victim got sexually assaulted and that she is not to blame at all during this. So was a that, lot of people... Yeah. Sorry, was that surprising to you that you actually saw it kind of the way you didn't expect to see it? Oh, 100%. I was expecting a very different experience, reading 10,000 very negative tweets. But in reality, I found some, a lot of very positive tweets where it was kind of an outlet for a lot of people who were trying to like situate their own victimization experiences or for people who really just wanted to express themselves and express their outrage at these cases. We're talking right now with Madeline Quelo. Madeline is a graduate of King's University College and is an award winner from the 2019 Global Undergraduate Awards for the paper that we're talking about right now, Rape Myths in Digital Spaces, and taking a look at, at how two cases in particular played out on Twitter, where you would imagine, yeah, things would get nasty, things would a lot of times blame the victim. So let's then look at the Steubenville High School rape case, because you're dealing with high school students in that case. You would think high school students would be all over the victim. What happened there? So you're actually seeing kind of a dichotomy in the situation where a lot of people in the hometown of Steubenville had a lot of outrage towards, I was going to say, towards the victim for coming forward for ruining these two, what they thought were like prospective star athletes. But on the other hand, in our tweets, we found something very similar where people were outraged. There was a petition that was circulated. So one of the perpetrators, uh, after he was sentenced, uh, I was going to say, for the rape of the young woman, he actually returned back to his high school football team and continued playing. <laughs> yeah, so after that, there was a, I was gonna say a petition with over, I think, 100,000 signatures calling for his removal off the team. And that was actually more than the entire town of Steubenville. So you see this, I was going to say, this kind of like opposing forces because like their local environment is, at this point, I was going to say, not being victim-supportive and is trying to, and is really kind of viewing perpetrators as people who deserve second chances. That is not to say perpetrators do not deserve second chances, but it's we need to be sensitive to the victim and we need to make sure that we're not only thinking of second chances when we think of sexual assault. This is fascinating because I, I think, as, as we said going into this, we needed to picture like you did. How do you think this is going to play out? How do you think that people would react upon seeing these stories. And a lot of them either are connected to them, some people have absolutely no connection to them, but in today's world, you have the ability to create an opinion, to post your opinion, to have your opinion seen and shared, and to think that that swell grew to 100,000 people trying to get him booted off a football team? Oh, yeah. There's additional, a very similar petition that went uh, through, which actually recalled the judge of the Stanford rape case, Aaron Persky. And actually, it was the, he's the first judge to be recalled in, oh God, I don't know. It was like, it was a very long time. <laughs> yeah, because they're in California. Okay. And that means that they didn't like the way that he ruled in this case. You mentioned the punishment that was handed out was six months, but with good behavior was reduced to three. Yeah, so he did get out. Brock Turner did get out after three months. Something that I think really outraged a lot of, I wouldn't say, advocates of sexual, I wouldn't say, of sexual assault victims is the fact is the way he ruled it and the way he really factored in the, I wouldn't say, the experience of Brock Turner, but really ignored the experience of the victim. 
uh, he, they actually also reduced the sentencing because there's this old rule in California. It's been since overposed, but uh, victims who are unconscious actually, uh, it's sorry, if you uh, rape an unconscious woman, woman, you cannot charge the man is like as stiff as you could if they were conscious during it. That makes sense. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's one of those things where no, that that's not right in any way. Yes, exactly. It's it can, it creates a bad precedent, and it kind of creates this loophole where people are arguing, well, the victim doesn't remember it because she was unconscious, but that at no point could ever be like an excuse. That's because what to that victim, that's still an eternity of damage and still an eternity of having to go through this. Absolutely. We're talking with Madeline Quelo. Madeline wrote a paper as an undergraduate at King's University College, and it ended up winning a 2019 Global Undergraduate Award. And to look at, at how many papers Madeline was up against, 3,473 from 338 institutions in 50 countries were submitted. 25 won awards as global winner status. This is something that obviously you spent an awful lot of time on. What did you gain from doing this, Madeline? Well, I gained so much. So I wrote this at King's throughout my honors thesis, and I worked specifically with Dr. Jordan Fairburn, uh, who was an amazing mentor, and it was so helpful working closely with someone who had so much knowledge, because Jordan herself had looked at the intersection between sexual violence and social media. So I could not have done this without like the King's fac- sociology faculty and the mentorship there, but working with the thesis, you're taking a project from its like roots, because it all started with me wanting to understand how rape myths are expressed in social media to a data collection of 10,000 tweets to an end result like this. And an end result that maybe has a a positive suggestion to it, which is something that I still am kind of shaking my own head over. I didn't think it would be like that, but I'm, I'm encouraged. Should I be encouraged? A little bit, a little bit. It's not to say that there are no rape myths and there definitely are, and they definitely do exist on Twitter, but rather there's an opportunity here for Twitter users to express their resistance towards rape culture in a very accessible and widespread way. Twitter is free. It is, a place where people can kind of express themselves without as much judgment, or I guess maybe that's a little arguable, but it's an opportunity, I think, for people to kind of have like a community on in these spaces to combat these cases that really make you feel upset. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who, was going to say, who read about the Stanford rape case and the Stubin rape case were outraged. And this is kind of an opportunity for these people to kind of like have a community response and express that outrage and kind of create a consensus view. Well, Madeline, congratulations again on what you have done. I can't wait to see what you do next. Where are you headed, can we ask? Yeah, so, uh, well, right now I am a master's student at University of Toronto, so I'm headed there. I'm looking at doing my PhD, uh, So, and I'm looking at expanding this view of rape and social spaces and looking specifically at more, more consent as uh, we move forward with sexual assault research. Well, good luck in your research. I can't wait to see your name on more papers to come. Thanks so Thank much you. for the time today. Thank you so much. That is Madeline Quelo. Madeline was at King's University College, did her undergrad there, and was named a 2019 Global Undergraduate Award winner for her paper dealing with rape myths in digital spaces and looking at a couple of high-profile rape cases. And you would think that on Twitter, you know, let, let's face it, we've seen a lot of victims who 
who are looked at in a certain way. And if you're on social media and you can kind of hide behind whether it's anonymity or whether it is a disconnect, it's easy to say, ah, well, you know, that girl was unconscious and come on. You know, it was her fault for getting so drunk. In the Steubenville case, they actually look at it and the girl who ended up being assaulted went from one place to another place to another place. She was there because one of the people who ended up standing trial for this, one of those people was someone who had said, yeah, yeah, come on along. She didn't know him very well, but did like him. And he was a very charismatic guy. And next thing you know, she's in a situation that she never thought she would ever be in and unconscious at some point. And, you know, this was picked up by anonymous and videos were circulated online. And all of a sudden that started to make a big difference. And you look at how much attention the case got for one of these guys to go back and try to play football again, and you've got a petition with 100,000 names on it saying, yeah, we don't want that. That's pretty wild. The Game Changers is a movie that played in London last night. From what I can tell, it's not available anywhere in London today. It is available in Toronto. If you go to their website and try to figure out where to watch the documentary, they will say, coming soon to digital, exciting announcements coming soon, please sign up. I don't want to sign up for your emails. Sorry, not interested. What this has is a number of very famous names attached to it, and that has really garnered added attention for it. And those names are executive producer James Cameron. So he's not making Avatar 2, or is he? It's taking forever to come out. This is like The Incredibles. Remember The Incredibles came out, the first movie, and then it looked like, well, they have a sequel very soon. And then by the time the sequel came out, everybody who watched the first one between the ages of 5 and 9 was in their 20s. Crazy. I don't think they were that old, but you get my point. James Cameron involved in this. Arnold Schwarzenegger involved in this. Jackie Chan. Race car driver Lewis Hamilton. Tennis player Novak Djokovic. Basketball star Chris Paul. And what it does is it follows a guy by the name of James Wilkes. Talks to other people too. And he was an ultimate fighter winner. And he roams around the world looking for the optimal diet for human performance which is a fascinating thing to look at because, hey, if something is good enough for elite athletes, maybe it's good enough for the rest of us. Now, a lot of the the stuff that's talked about here ends up being a plant-based diet. And we happen to have someone who eats a plant-based diet who works here at 980 CFPL and who happened to see the movie last night. So I thought this would provide an interesting perspective on things. Please welcome Jacqueline Carbone to the studio. Jacqueline, you have had us try different plant-based meals, plant-based foods. In fact, we did that on the air one time about six months ago. What were those things you made? They were really good. Uh, it was popcorn, popcorn chicken. KFC that was it. Bowl. Yeah. 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 Popcorn chicken, but it wasn't chicken. There was no chicken anywhere near there, right? No chicken in my house. Well, people have started talking again about eating plant-based protein because of a movie that 
appeared in London last night. It's it's one of the hardest things to find to watch. It looks like you'll have to go to Toronto if you want to see it tonight. I'm imagining they're still trying to work out a deal to appear on a streaming service, but I haven't quite seen which streaming service that will be. But this is something that will be talked about a lot. Game Changers. This is a documentary film. It's done by James Cameron. It will feature Arnold Schwarzenegger and a really strong guy, another guy, and a number of other elite athletes. And Jacqueline, what are they contending? That they do not eat meat and yet perform at an elite level? Is that the basis of this? Yeah, so they eat no animal products whatsoever. So no dairy, no eggs, no no cheese. Uh, nothing like that. Nothing that comes. Nothing that comes from anything with a face. Okay, and so that puts them in the class of vegan. I'd Not say, necessarily. I'd say, I'd say plant based. Um, vegan. So vegan isn't a diet. Just real quickly, vegan isn't necessarily a diet. It's a more of a lifestyle. Okay. Um, whereas you don't wear fur and other things like that, you don't contribute in any way to uh, animal exploitation or exploitation of any living beings. Um, whereas plant based is where your diet is just specifically about diet, how you eat. Um, so they're they're they have a vegan diet, a plant based diet. Whereas I don't I don't necessarily know if they live a full out full fully vegan. Life. Sure, but they're eating a plant based diet. Yes. and trying to perform at elite athletic levels. Now this documentary has had a, a lot of sides go to it. A lot of people have been criticizing it. A lot of people have been very encouraged by what it was saying. What did you get out of this? So I I think my what I really got out of it, so I did go to see the premiere last night in London. Um, I think it's the only showing in London, actually. And what I got out of it was like kind of, I guess, more more or less reinforcing things I already knew, um, giving me the, more information so that when I do go out into the world and someone has, says, hey, what about this? I can be like, no, this, right? Um, so they, they did things like, um, what about B12? And basically like, you're, if you're a meat eater and I'm a vegan, our B12 is probably the same. Okay. So what is the it. argument against B12 and the concern about B12 for someone who's eating a plant-based diet? Um, so the idea is that you're not um, – for, for, for someone who's eating a plant-based diet, B12 um, generally comes from animals. I guess that's, that's how we've been – that's how society has seen it. Uh, really, B12 comes from like the dirt on potatoes. Um, so it's like, it's like in the dirt. your potatoes. Yeah. So it's like in that dirt and stuff like that. But now because there's so many pesticides and stuff used um, – People aren't getting B12. And even the animals that are eating that stuff aren't getting the B12 from from the plants. They're getting it from they're getting it from supplements. Like they're getting they're getting like supplements into them. So chickens like take supplements and, and cows are given supplements so that they have B12 so that you get B12. So basically they're just cutting out the middleman. So basically whether you're on a um, an om- omnivorous diet or you're on a vegan diet or a plant-based diet, you should be taking a B12 supplement regardless. We're talking about Game Changers, which premiered and was shown in London last night. And again, it does have a website to it. It is a little difficult to find, and I'm not quite sure what has gone into them throwing it out there and then saying, yeah, okay, there was, but we're not sure where it's going to go. If you go to GameChangersMovie.com, you can find out more about it. So in this particular documentary, how did they go through things to try and ask questions of athletes? Did they just kind of pick people and say, okay, come here, tell me about your life, or did they do it a different way? So I, they, they basically picked athletes who had, been, who had transitioned to a plant-based diet or who had always been on a plant-based diet. And uh, they, went from, they started off with um, a lot of leaner athletes. So there was a cyclist. Um, there was a uh, like long dist- like super long-distance marathon runner, like 
extra Ultra long. marathon. Yeah, 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 that's it. Um, They're the ones who run 100K in a race. Yeah, this guy did the, ran the Appalachian Trail. That's the one. He's, he ran it the fastest. Actually, really? on his plant-based diet. <laughs> and he got injured on the way and through, like, anyway, it was, it's really cool. Um, so they start with the lean people, like the lean diets, and they're like, well, all these people are pretty lean. Like, what about if you want to, like, you know, what, if you want to, like, make gains, right? So then they moved on to, like, the strongest man in the world competition and to people who are in bodybuilding competitions and, like, how they're, they're winning these competitions on a plant-based diet. And uh, I, I think one of the funniest quotes in the movie was this guy's, like, he, uh, I forget his name, but he's one of the strongest men in the world. And he's like, if I want to... If I want to move like an ox, why would I eat an ox? Oxes eat grass. He's like, and then he said something like, um, "What if uh, if I wanted to be smarter, that would be that would mean me eating? I would have to eat smart people's brains." <laughs> He's like, and that just doesn't make sense. I get the correlation. Yeah. <laughs> so, as someone who does eat a plant based diet, in the end, were you? Happy about the way things were presented by James Cameron? Did you enjoy what you saw on the screen? Yeah, no, I really liked it. I think he they did a really good job laying out. The biggest uh, takeaway for me was that the the animals are the middleman. They're the middle being that, you know, they get all their protein and stuff from the plants, and then we eat the animals because they ate the plants. So why don't we just go right to the source? Why don't we just eat <laughs> eat the plants that are providing the well, animals Don't protein? we need the tissue and the meat and things like that from them? That's the other side of the argument. Yeah, and we actually don't need any of that. Uh, everything that you're getting, that all the good stuff that you're getting is coming from plants. Um, again, I'm not a scientist. Um, these are just things that I've, I've read a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of research. I've been vegan for a while. So I'm just giving you the knowledge that I have. But um, all the all the stuff that's com- that you think you're getting from animals, you're not getting from animals. And every th- all the good stuff that you should be getting is depleted because it's going through the animals first. So whether it's B12, whether it's protein, whether it's um, I think like vitamin C, uh, stuff like that. Like if you're going through the animal, like you're just, you're lessening how much you're getting of that, of that source. All right. Well, interesting thing to check out. Game Changers, again, it's something that premiered in London last night. There are showings in Toronto tonight. I don't know whether they're still negotiating where they're going to pop up next, but GameChangersMovie.com is a way to go to try and find out more about it. Jacqueline, thanks for this. No problem. Jacqueline Carbone, 980 CFPL. So a perspective on Game Changers. And again, they're, I don't understand what they're doing. I Maybe I do. They don't have this out there for the masses, and then they they give you a little drib and a little drab, and it's going to be in this place on you know Tuesday night. It's going to be over here on Wednesday, but you can't just go out and see it, and it helps to create a buzz. Look at us. We're talking about it, and one of the things we're talking about is how difficult it is to see. Plus, they want you to sign up for their little email notices, and... That's how you can find out where you can see this thing. So, yeah, I, I can see what they're doing. It's all it's all part of today's game, but it is an interesting discussion point. And we're still trying to figure things out in terms of what the human body does need. We've got a lot of science going into it, and we've got a lot of science saying one way and another way. The thing that ultimately I think will make the difference for a lot of people, don't you go to the grocery store and go, what's with chicken? What, why is it so expensive? How, you know... I'll buy the chicken thighs with the skin on because they're cheap. And then when a lot of people buy that, the price of those go up. The price of chicken is insane. The price of beef is insane. And I think that's one of those things that makes you look and say, if I could save some bucks at this, instead of shelling out 24 bucks for six chicken breasts, give me a break, or 24 bucks for three chewy steaks, 
there's got to be better. That might give everybody a little bit more of a push. And uh, things like this will get us thinking. I love when things get us thinking. Predicting. It's very difficult. How many times has somebody predicted the end of the world? Quite a bit. Has it happened yet? Is that, that No one's gotten that one right yet. Have they? I don't think so. I'm getting a kick out of looking back at some NFL predictions right now. Predictions like, if the Cleveland Browns don't win their division, look at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Great offensive line. Ben Roethlisberger. Good coach. Oh, they're going to have a great year. Uh, they're awful, and Ben Roethlisberger is out for the year. They're going to be terrible. And then you look at the New Orleans Saints. Peter King, who is a football guru, decided to make a prediction and predicted they would be back in the Super Bowl. One of the very few people to predict that. And then in week two, their quarterback, Drew Brees, hurts his thumb. And the injury that he has, some people, when they got that one fixed, they can't flatten out their own hand. So your hand is like permanently curled. You can't flatten your hand. Your thumb doesn't do that. So you you can't make it happen. And then, oh, the New York Jets are going to be better. Yeah, their second stringer who was filling in for the first stringer who has mono folded his foot underneath him last night, and I don't think he's going to be playing. So after two weeks, they're on their third quarterback. You can't make predictions. They're fun to make because if you're right... <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew the Vegas Golden Knights were going to the Stanley Cup Finals in their very first year. Of course I did. No, you didn't. But you threw it out there just so you could have bragging rights with your buddies. And that makes all the sense. It's fun to do. But predicting what will happen is a very difficult thing. And the NFL proves it right now. Something else that proves it is what's going on in education. In order to predict what it is you're going to be good at doing, you have to know what it is you want to do. And that's sometimes very difficult if you are 15, 16 years of age, which is when you really kind of get the pressure to start doing that. And that's one of the things that Megan Cauley has focused on in an education series that she's been working on. Megan is a global news reporter, and we are lucky enough to have her with us right now. Megan, thanks for being here on London Live. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of look at some of the things you've decided to explore, including students trying to predict what it is they're going to be good at or even trying to decide what it is they want to do. It's it's not that easy, and you now see that firsthand. Exactly, yeah. So we interviewed students from across the country, and there seems to be a pretty vast disconnect between the pressure we're placing on students uh, in high school and specifically in grade 12 to decide what they want to do uh, for the next four, five, six years and uh, their post-secondary pathway and the realities of the workforce, which are, you know, it, it's rapidly changing all the time. Technology is constantly advancing. And, um, yeah, there, there seems to be a disconnect between these poor students who are, you know, paralyzed in place and scared about making the wrong choice. The series Megan is doing is called Failure to Launch, and the first story in what will be a four-part series is out today. So you're going to be able to see the rest of this kind of unfold. But this is a very interesting thing to look at because you want kids to figure out what they want to do, but what did some of them that you spoke with tell you about trying to figure out what they want to do? 
Yeah, well, you know, I, there are many factors at play in making these decisions. Um, for starters, a lot of them, some of them 16, 17 years old, have no idea what they're interested in or where to even start in terms of what they might want to do for their job or their career. Um, a lot of them are also feeling pressure from their peers, from their educators and administrators at their school, from their parents to go into, quote-unquote, stable jobs. Uh, but, you know, those don't really exist anymore, so there's a disconnect there as well. Um, and and they don't really feel prepared for even, you know, landing at a post-secondary uh, path the following September. A lot of them are worried about things like, how to open a credit card or how to pay their taxes or how to do their own laundry. So it's really multi-layered and all of this pressure sort of compounds and can cause a lot of stress and anxiety for these kids. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, we live in a world where they've got everything at their fingertips. And sometimes when, you, when you're looking at anything being possible and you've got a great quote in there dealing with anything being possible, it's difficult to figure out what that one thing is that you want to do. Do you hear a push from them that that they want to see educators handle things differently or are they left without any solutions? I think I think they're looking for a more hands-on approach. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of factors at play. I think educators, especially now, are uh, pulled in all different directions. Um, but I do think that students are looking for more um, hands-on education when they're in high school. You know, a class, a lot of students mentioned that a class dedicated to teaching things like how to navigate an online portal for applying to, you know, here in Ontario, we have OUAC. It's the online portal where you apply to Ontario post-secondary institutions. Um, Even just having time to actually go through what an application requires, how to write a personal statement of experience, which some schools require, um, how to take a career aptitude test and see what your interests could align with down the line. Um, A lot of kids are, are feeling starved for that and, like, like they're they're only really getting the more theoretical classes, so they're getting all the typical classes you would think of: math, science, English. But they they don't know how to translate those skills into the real world, quote unquote. Global News reporter Megan Colley joining us. The first of a four-part series is out at globalnews.ca, and you can check that out right now, and then you can follow up and read the other three parts as well. It's called "Failure to Launch Kids: Canadian Students." aren't prepared for adulthood. And you mentioned the stress component of this. There also can be things like stigmas around where you should go. Did anyone mention stigmas around college or or, or the, the idea that you have to go to university? Oh, my gosh. Every single student I interviewed, hands down, at least once mentioned that they felt like they had to go to university and they had to do it right away. There was no room for a gap year or for taking an extra year to figure out what they wanted to do or maybe exploring college or workplace alternatives. It was university or nothing. Um, But, you know, experts have shown and studies have proven that that stigma doesn't really hold up in the long run. In fact, a lot of students see great success in getting hiring right out of a college diploma because the experience is hands-on. It's experiential learning with career-integrated components where the kids get hands-on, you know, um, in the field experience, figuring out if they actually like to do that. And if they do, then they have those transferable skills that they can lay out very easily on a resume or in an, in an interview. Man, I always feel so bad for kids who go into a program 
and have spent a lot of money and then realize, yeah, this this isn't what I I didn't think this is what this was all about. This this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then have to try and convince their parents that, yeah, I know you spent thousands of dollars on this past year, but I don't want to do this anymore. And that's that sounds like something that is a possibility for some kids if they don't feel prepared to jump into the right path in the first place. Absolutely. I think another thing that happens very often is kids end up going for, uh, let's say they end up going to university, they end up choosing a general degree. So they'll do a Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Science. And by the end of the four years, they still haven't figured out what specifically they want to do. So, you know, now they all have all of these random credits and all this random knowledge. And yeah, they've spent so much time and so much money uh going down a path that maybe wasn't right for them when really they could have gone right into the workforce or right into a college diploma, spent less time, less money, and started working sooner in something that they actually like to do. Global News reporter Megan Colley joining us. Megan, this is the first of a four-part series. What else do you get to explore? Yeah, so next Tuesday we're uh, honing in on the role of a school counselor and what they contribute to this transition and how a lack of resources and a lack of bandwidth uh, of school counselors across the country can negatively impact student success and, and uh, post-secondary outcomes. Um, after that, we're going to look at the stigma you and I were just talking about in more detail, uh, university or college. Why does this stigma endure? Uh, why it isn't exactly accurate anymore? And why parents and educators should be more comfortable with kids choosing different pathways other than university. And the last story will look specifically at mental health and how once these kids are on a campus, wherever they end up, um, what schools can do to adequately care for students uh, at the end of this very tumultuous transition as they're, they're moving on through their de- degrees or diplomas. Megan, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. That is Megan Cauley, Global News reporter on a series called Failure to Launch Kids, Canadian Students Not Prepared for Adulthood. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.